This week and next week, kind of reaching the culmination of the book of Hebrews. And we've been going through this series about Jesus only and how Jesus really is the focus of this letter to these Hebrew uh, readers and listeners. And, and we're going to be looking at that, really what the author has been driving at for these first ten chapters. We're going to look at that today and next week. I said that really he gets to this, this sort of therefore, like in light of all these things, therefore, this is what we want to do. So that's what we're going to talk about today and next week. Uh, to set the context, I want to tell you a little bit of a story. Uh, my wife and me and my family, we just got back from a trip to California. And it's something we've been planning for like 12 years, saved up money, got some inheritance money. And we're like, listen, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take the kids and we're going to California. We've, we've been waiting to do this. We have friends out there. And the great part about it was that we went and we knew people who were there. I don't know if you've ever done a vacation where you don't know people, but what was great was we knew people there. So they were able to show us where to go what to do, where to eat, what things to, you know, go after instead of the normal tourist-type things and, and all of that. And, and we went to the Redwoods, which were, like, tear-inducing, beautiful to me. I love nature. I love outdoors. It was amazing. And we visited some friends at the beach. And then we went and visited uh, my friend Arnold, who is, uh, he's lived out there for about 15 years now. And he camps all over the place in California. And he said, look, I want to take you and your family camping. Now, I've, I've been tent camping before. This wasn't a totally new experience to me, but we'd never done it quite in this environment with, you know, three kids and, and out in kind of the middle of nowhere. And it ended up being a really great experience. There's no joke hidden behind there. It was an awesome experience. Um, but what happened was we, we went to Arnold's house, and, and he got out a paper map like he still uses them, and he lays it out on the floor, and, and he says, this is where we're going to go. And we're going to drive from his house in Santa Clara, which is a little bit outside of Oakland. And we're going to drive east, and we're going to head to Merced. We're going to stay there for the night. And then we're going to drive off into the high Sierras, and we're going to camp in the mountains. And I said, this is great. Fantastic. So he loaded up his truck with stuff. We loaded up our rental car with some more camping stuff, and we hopped on the road. And what we had to do, well, we had walkie-talkies between us, so he was able to communicate back and forth with me about where we were going and what we were doing. But really what it came down to is I had to follow him. I had to keep following him off into Merced through produce country where like a ton of the nation's produce comes from. And, and he's on the walkie-talkie and he's telling my kids, if you look over here, there's almond trees. And look over here, there's you know, tomato farms. And it's just all this produce and it's beautiful. But I'm like, I have no idea where I am. I'm just following him. I'm just trusting him that he knows where he's going and we're going to get there and we're going to get to this great destination that he's been to before. And eventually you kind of get to the foothills and, and the grass starts to turn this golden color and, and everything starts to get kind of barren because there's been a wildfire. And we start going up into the mountains and there's still like the smell of smoke. There's houses that have been burned down. And we're just going higher and higher into this elevation and, and more and more into like this smoky area. But he knew where we were going. And he'd been there before. And he knew that our destination, and I didn't know it at the time, our destination was Yosemite which I've wanted to go there my entire life. And that was not initially on a plan. He changed plans at the last moment. And he knew where we were going. And, and that's, that's really, to me, that's the point of this, is that I was following him. He knew where we were going. He'd been there before. He knew what we were looking forward to. And he was help calling me to that and teaching me along the way and encouraging me. Had I been alone, as a dad, as a husband, I would have been a little bit worried that maybe I was not in the right place because it didn't look like the pictures that I expected. It didn't look at all like the California that I had in my mind. And, and so it helped to be with someone else who knew what was going on and was able to encourage me on that journey. 
Church today, I think that's really where we're at in the book of Hebrews. That's what the author is calling us to, is to, to follow someone and to, to be together in this journey. And what the author was trying to encourage his readers to was to not fall away from faith, which we've talked about this a little bit earlier in chapter 6. So my question is, have, have you ever been tempted to fall away? Now, I know most of us, if you're, if you're a Christ follower here, you're like, no, I've, I've not been tempted to fall away from faith. Like, I would never do that. But, okay, have you been tempted to maybe find your identity elsewhere? Right? We talk about identity a lot here. Have you been tempted to, to maybe go back to a works-based religion where you're trying to earn God's approval all the time and you're trying to, to make up for sins and you're trying to get God to love you again. You're trying to find your identity somewhere else. Have you, all of us, right, have been tempted to give in to sin, to give in to temptation, right? I mean, this is a normal daily occurrence for us. We've been tempted to make ourselves look a little bit better, right, trying to find our, our identity in what we can produce. We might tell little white lies, try to get people to think differently about us, think better of us trying to make ourselves known, trying to protect our image. I know for me, I get tempted to buy what the world is selling as far as my identity, that, that I need to perform and, and be better at my job, or I need to be better at school, or I need to be better at athletics, I need to make more money so that, so that I can be someone. So it might not be tempted to fall away from faith, but I would say maybe we're tempted to fall away from the gospel and fall away from the identity that Jesus gives us. So, the burden that I'm trying to unload today to help us understand and to see what this author is going after is that this, this is what the author's been building at the entire time. The foundation that has been laid over these first ten chapters is that Jesus is worthy to be followed. That he's worthy to, to have our devotion and to stay connected to him. And that we're not alone in doing so. That we're not called to be isolated. I know we, we talk about this often, we're just these isolated, independent Americans, but we're not called to be alone. We are called to be part of a family on mission, which is something we talk about here at Hope on a regular basis. And that there are others who go with us on the journey, and that we go with them and we encourage them, and ultimately leading towards the blessing of inheritance of God's promises. That's what we're leaning into. That's, to me, that was some of what that California story was about was going with someone, following them, and getting into the promised land of Yosemite, in that case, uh, but, but someday into the inheritance that Jesus has purchased for us. That's our identity as part of his, God's narrative. So, this is what I want to do. We're going to be in chapter 10 and 11. So if you have the copy of the scriptures today, I would encourage you to get them out. We'll be looking through that. But so, that so far in Hebrews, a lot has been established up to this point. Everything is going to land right here today on the culmination of this letter. But what has been established so far, the foundation that's been laid, starting chapter 1, first off, is that Jesus is greater than the angels, that he brings a more complete message than the angels. He brings the final kind of authoritative word of God on earth to the people of Israel, bringing the Messiah to earth. He's, he's the final message. He's fully human. He's our brother. He understands what it looks like and what it feels like to be tempted, to be in the flesh, to, to live on this earth. He's greater than Moses, which was very important to tell these Jewish background believers. It was very important to remind them that Jesus is greater than Moses. Don't go back to the law. 
Jesus has brought something new. He's greater than Moses. He brought the promised rest that they've been waiting for. He's the greatest high priest. There's no longer a need for a high priest to offer sacrifices because Jesus has accomplished it. He has, he has bought, the, uh, bought us with blood, his own blood, the sacrifice. He's the greatest high priest. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Remember this, this crazy name that kept coming up? That he was a priest with no beginning and no end, ordained by God, picked by God to be our high priest. And ultimately bringing the new covenant that Jeremiah and the other prophets had promised. This covenant that would be written on our hearts, no longer a law that needed to be memorized. It would be on our hearts and we could have clean consciences rather than just constantly atoning for sin. And like Adam talked about last week, that Jesus is not just the the Grand Canyon of Pennsylvania. Remember, he was the real deal. Remember, he wasn't just a shadow, but he was the completion of that. He brought God's image to earth and God's presence and provision to earth. So that's what this author's been laying out this whole time. That's the foundation that's being built. And then today, he lands on, therefore, in light of all of that, in light of who Jesus is and what, he has, what he's accomplished on our behalf, now what? Somebody called this, this is the lettuce patch. I don't know if you've heard that before. He says, let us do this, let us do this, let us do this. It's a corny joke, but it's a, it's a helpful thing to remember. So if you have it, if you have your scriptures, look at uh, chapter 10, verse 19. I believe we're going to try to put it on the screen. Uh, we don't normally do this, but it's some long passages today. So I would encourage you, if you have your scriptures, read it there. It, this, is, this is your friend that you bring home with you. Get familiar with it. Read it there. But if not, you can read it up on the screen or on your phones, whatever you got. So he says, in light of all these things, chapter 10, verse 19. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching." And then 26 through 34, he goes into this warning again of not falling away. In light of all these things, don't fall away. Don't give up on that, right? And then he comes back in verse 35. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, and he quotes Habakkuk here, a prophet, he who is coming will come and will not delay but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. So the first thing I want to point out here is what he's saying is, in light of all that Jesus has accomplished, therefore, we can draw near to God. We can draw near to God. The magnitude of this, I think, because you know, maybe some of us have been Christ followers for a long time, we come to church, we're like, yeah, we can worship God wherever we go. I think sometimes we lose the incredible nature of this. Think about it. He's talking to these Jewish background believers, and he's, he's reminding them, do you remember what had to be done before so that people could be in God's presence? 
All the ceremonial washing that had to happen so that they could approach the temple and even be near it. And then from there, a group of people, priests, were chosen by lot to go in and, and to minister around the temple. And then maybe one time a year, a guy could go inside. One guy could go into the Holy of Holies and be in God's presence. One. Once a year. And he would speak the name of Yahweh over the people and they would fall down in reverent worship around the temple. Those priests had to wash themselves, completely immerse themselves in water so they might even have a chance to be called by law, have their, have their straw chosen so they could go in to minister. I mean, it's this incredible picture that he's painted for them and we know from, from Scripture. And he says, well, in light of all that Jesus has done for us, you draw near in worship. You can now go into God's presence. This is an incredible picture of God's grace towards us and what Jesus has accomplished for us. This is what we've been given through Jesus. Now, remember, these are people who were tempted to fall away. These are people who were tempted to find their identity elsewhere. They're scared. They're afraid of what's going to happen to them from the persecution of culture collapsing in around them. And what is his advice? Draw near to God. Draw near to God in worship with a clean conscience. You've been washed clean, he says, like the priests had to fully immerse themselves. He says, you've been washed clean. You can draw near to God. So to me, what I'm hearing him say is when everything else is saying to give up, when everything is saying maybe find your identity elsewhere, don't draw away, draw near to God. Pull in close. A lot of times what happens when we have doubts, we feel like we need to work real hard, or we feel like, well, you know, I don't really want to go to church today. I don't, I don't really feel like going to a community group. I don't want to meet with anybody. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Discipline yourself, call yourself, force yourself to go and draw near to God because this is what Jesus has earned for you. This is what he gave his life for is that we could be in God's presence and worship with a clean conscience. Church, that's what Jeremiah promised, like I said earlier, that, that the, heart, the, the heart would have God's love in it, God's law in it. We'd have a clean conscience and we could be in God's presence wherever we go. So it's incredible that, that we can do this out and about. We can do this when we're praying with our kids. We can do this when we're friends in the cafeteria. We can do this when we're in the car. We can do it here every week when we worship God together. It's an incredible picture of God's grace and his mercy to us in Jesus. So that's the first thing I see them, him calling them to in the midst of maybe finding their identity elsewhere is that we can draw near to God. But then I would say that as a Christ follower, we're not alone. I would say, you're not alone. You're not alone in pursuing your faith. You're not alone to do this on your own. There's a, there's a point in us being a family on mission. Look what he says in verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. You notice that word consider there? It comes up later as well. It just means think about Meditate on, dwell on, process through. He says, consider how to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. How much time do we sit around doing that? Really, like how much time do we spend sitting around thinking, how can I encourage my fellow brothers and sisters in the church towards love and good deeds? Like how many self-help books are about that, right? How many Christian books are about that? They're not. They're all about how you can get better, how you can get better. And this author is saying, are you worried about losing your identity? Are you considering falling away? You know what you could do? Spur other people on. That's not an American psychological practice, right? It's all about you. And he's saying, if you want to follow Jesus, 
We are called to not do this alone. We are called to consider and to think about how to spur others on in their walks. I'll say this just from personal testimony. Sometimes the best thing that I can do when I'm struggling with temptation and with sin is to, I've heard it said before, like, get the focus off of my belly button instead of just looking down the whole time and look up and look around and see what's around me and start praying for people. When I'm tempted to sin, I start thinking, okay, well, I, I know other people who are struggling with this same thing, so I'm going to pray for them right now. Maybe I'll text them, maybe I'll call them, maybe I'll write them an email. That's what he's calling us to here, this author to Hebrews to us is saying, when you are tempted to fall away, consider how you can spur other people on. And then he goes on in verse 25. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but instead let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, I've heard this preached before. I've read this before. It's like, let us not give up meeting together. You better be in church on Sunday. Right? I mean, we've heard that. We read that, and we're like, ugh, I better be in church. I mean, this is what I got to do. Well, again, we're in the gospel. We have freedom now. There's no religious box to check off anymore and say, I'm a good Christian because I go to church every week. That's not what he's after here. What he's after is about the encouragement that comes from the saints gathering together. Whether that's one-on-one, whether that's in a community group, whether that's in a church service like this on a weekly basis, he's saying, don't give up doing that together. Now, they were stopping meeting together because they were scared of persecution. They were worried what culture around them was going to think. They were worried that it would be obvious that when they got together that there's the Christians. Now we know who they are. We can identify them. And he's saying, don't stop meeting together. Don't give in to that fear. Now, we live in a pretty free society. I get it. Like, we can gather together really without fear of persecution still. We might get a little weird about culture sometimes, but for the most part, we can gather without fear. But I've heard, I've heard these fears before from people about why they might not have time for community group or why they, you know what, I don't know if I want to be a worship service on Sundays. I've heard excuses of in-laws. That's true. I've heard excuses of sports. I've had this one, not having enough me time. Like, uh, you know what, I just, wanna, I just want some downtime. I don't, I don't want to go see anybody. I'm an introvert at heart, so that's, like, that's me a lot of times. I'm like, I just I don't need people right now. And what the author is saying is, don't, don't live in that fear. Come and be together. Something good happens when the saints gather together for you and for me, for one another. We, my wife and I, we lived in Jordan for a year. And let me tell you something. We had a, a little tiny house church. It was us and a couple other international workers who were there. It was not great. <laughs> this worship is outstanding, I'll tell you that much, compared to what we had going on there. Holy cow. It was like me on a little bongo, and anyway. <laughs> but it was an encouragement in light of the dry, barren, Christianless land around us that we were not alone, that we were on this journey together. And then as Christ followers were made in that area, they started coming into this house church saying, it is good to know that we are not alone. Church, something happens when the saints gather together. They encourage one another. Look at that second part of 25, verse 25. That's what he says, right? He says, let us not give up meeting together, but instead, what should we do? 
We encourage one another. So to me, the correlation that he's making there is that being together is meant to be an encouragement. When we see other believers, at least for me, this is the way I process this, right? I was joking around with Bryce about it earlier, that when I see Rachel, the teacher, I'm reminded that she goes out into the workplace this week and is a Christ follower. When I see her here on Sunday, when I see the Michelles in here who are moms, full-time investing in their kids and in their family and in their neighborhoods, I'm reminded that they're going to take Jesus from this place and they're going to go and they're going to live him out there. When I see Bryce, the real estate investor, as we talked about, I know that he goes from here and he brings that. He tries to bring that piece of the, that, that Jesus to that piece of the kingdom that God has given him. It's an encouragement when we are together to see that we're not alone and that other people are going to take faith with them when they go out into the world this week. At least for me it is. And the other thing you need to know is that when you come here, we have a responsibility, we have a call, we have the privilege to remind other people of the same thing. To spur them on to love and good, good deeds. Encourage them into this coming week. Remind them of what Jesus has done for them and say, when you go out to be students this week, remember the gospel. Remember what Jesus has done for you. When you go out into your jobs this week, bring a piece of the kingdom with you. Help people see that. Remember the gospel. Don't fall back into getting your identity from elsewhere. That's the purpose of gathering together. It's not to check off some religious score sheet and say, look at me, a good Christian. One of the purposes of gathering weekly is to encourage one another in the gospel. That's what the author is going after here. He's saying, don't give up meeting together, but instead encourage one another, especially as you see the day approaching. That day there is the coming judgment when Jesus returns and judges the earth and puts the world to rights. Right? And we talk about this regularly, that new creation has started and someday it will be brought to its fulfillment. And he's saying, as you see that day approaching, keep encouraging one another. Keep reminding one another that the day is coming, that Jesus will come and he will make things right. He will take away the pain, the sin, the death, the brokenness. Keep on, keep going, keep going. That is why we gather week in and week out. Every Sunday here that we gather is a reminder of the small rest that we have now in Jesus looking forward to the full promised rest of God's kingdom on earth. Uh, right now, I'm going to have my wife come up and read. We're going to read through chapter 11. And I hope I don't get feedback here. We're going to read through all of chapter 11. And I'm having her read, so you don't have to listen to me. I don't want to hear my own voice for that long. Um, if you have chapter 11, read along with it. But the thing that I'm going after here is that as a Christ follower, you're part of a family with a heritage and a history. Okay, that's what Jesus has put us into. So we're going to read through chapter 11 now. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. For this is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he's dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists 
and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when he warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith, he commended, <coughs> commanded the world, commended the world and became the heir of righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he, as good as dead, came the descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sands on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country, looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could, only, could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did, not receive, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. But by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded the disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who's invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed all the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? Do I not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who all through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, and who became powerful in battle, and rooted foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again, Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. 
Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put into prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Thank you. I'll let her read all the difficult names there at the end. Um, He goes on in 12, verse 1, to say this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, people looking on, people who have seen this, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Church, as Christ followers, if if you're following Jesus, what this author is trying to say is that you have been placed into a family that has a long history of faith and an incredible heritage of broken people with little bits of faith. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up with some of these verses memorized, you know, going back to 1039. But we're not those who shrink back. Or verse 11.1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Verse 6. Without faith it is impossible to please God. And then you read this whole chapter of 11 about all these faithful people. I used to come to this and think, oh man, I better be just like Moses. I better have faith like that or I'm not going to please God. I better have faith like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I better have faith like David. I, you know, I better be this level of faith so that God will be happy. That's how I used to interpret these verses. And I think that couldn't be further from the truth. I think what this author is trying to tell them is, you know what? You are in this family and these are some jacked up, broken people who did some really boneheaded things and they had a little bit of faith and God rewarded it. I mean, think about it. Think about Abraham. Slept with his handmaiden. Said that his wife was his sister. Twice. So that he wouldn't be hurt on her behalf. Noah ends up getting drunk and doing some dumb stuff. Jacob was a liar. Joseph was an arrogant little man from all that I can gather. I mean... Look at him. And then he gets into the end there in verse 32 when he realizes he's been going on for too long. He starts just throwing in names. And I don't have time to mention, you know, all that David did. Think about David, his sins. Gideon, fearful. Barak, fearful. Samson, we know that story. I mean, read Judges. That's where a lot of these people come from. That's a story of messed up, broken people. But he's saying they all had a little bit of faith. They had a little bit of faith. They kept believing that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. They interfered sometimes. And they did some dumb stuff waiting for God to do it. But God rewarded their faith with fulfillment of some of the promises. It's an incredible picture. So faith is not something that we need to just drum up and say, okay, I need to be a better person. I'm going to be a more faithful person. He's saying, like Jesus, have faith just like a mustard seed. Let it grow. And you'll start to see God fulfill his promises. And you grow in faith as you go. It's another reason that we draw near to God to learn more of his character, and it's another reason that we stay together. It's another reason that we gather. It's because, guess what? Sometimes my faith is not going to be strong. It's just not. Sometimes I'm going to need your faith to be strong on my behalf. 
right? I mean, are we, are we so faithful every day? We believe everything about God every day? We believe all his promises every day? No. We need others to help us walk in that journey, to have faith for us when we can't. The other thing that I think the author is trying to say to them and I would say to us is that God has been working out this narrative over the course of several thousand years and he's saying to the readers, you're the continuation of that. God will bring to completion all of his plan and you are a part of that. And what he's saying to us today is that we are also a part of that now. We are the adopted sons and daughters of God. We become part of the family of Abraham, Paul says. We are part of that inheritance with him, and God's narrative will be seen through to its completion, and we get to be part of that. A family on mission, bringing God's rule and reign to earth through our little bit of faith at a time. That's what he's calling them to. That's why we gather together every week to remind one another of those truths. And I love what he says in 12.1. He says, let us run the race that's been marked out for us. There is a race that each one of us has been called to run, that each one of us has been called to, to live by faith and work through as moms, as dads, as single people, as students, as, as teachers, as real estate investors, whatever it is, this race that God has marked out for us, we need to run it with perseverance and allow God to grow our faith through the building up of the church. I would say it's our ordinary lives are part of God's extraordinary narrative. You understand that God is who does the extraordinary. We just have ordinary lives. We get to be part of his extraordinary narrative. Finally, church, look at 12.2. All this, to me, leads to this right here. In this race that we're running, then, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. As a Christ follower, we can persevere. And we do that through looking to Jesus. Remember my friend Arnold, who I was talking about, he, <laughs> he's got a Jewish background, not a believer. He would love if I told him that I used him as an analogy for Jesus. Arnold went ahead of me and had been there before, So I trusted him because I knew he'd been there. I knew he'd been there before. I knew that he knew where we were going. So I could follow him. And that's what the author is saying here. Jesus is the trailblazer. Jesus is the one who came, fully God, fully man, who walked this earth through temptation, through the the, the fear of the cross, and and pushed through the, the isolation and the abandonment of his friends and persecution and death on our behalf. And he's saying we can look to him to persevere. We can look to him and be motivated by what he has gone through. You know, I really believe that beliefs dictate behavior. So again, what he's saying here is consider him. Consider what you believe about Jesus. Think about this. Think about who he is, what he's done. Meditate on that. Pray about that. Focus on that. And you'll be reminded and encouraged by what he has done. And it will start to dictate behavior. When I went hiking a couple years ago up in New York in the Adirondacks and 
there was this point. I had never done high peaks before. Like, I'd never gotten above a tree line somewhere. And, and so I did it one day, and I, you come up above the tree line, and you're on this granite-top mountain. I'm like, man, this is unbelievable. I want to do this again tomorrow. So I, I picked out what I thought was kind of a short hike. I think it said it was like three and a half miles. What I didn't realize, it was three and a half miles up and three and a half miles back, which, again, for any of you who are hikers, like, you're like seven miles. That's not a whole lot. For me, it was. And um, so I, I get up to the top or near the top, and there's this clearing. I'm still in the trees, but I can see this granite top of the mountain. And I was exhausted, and I was so hot, starving. It was near the, uh, this is a side story, it was near the Olympic Training Center that's up there, and, and all these young women, I don't know if they were practicing for, like, skiing or what, they came running by, and they run right by me, right to the top, and I'm like, <sighs> I'm, like, dying. So anyway... I start to see that there's a group of people at the top of this mountain. And I'm thinking, okay, they've gotten there. I can see the path now. I can see the way around. I got to go. I got to keep going to get there because I want to, you know, summit this thing and be to the top and look around and see the valley. And That's what we do with Jesus. It's what we do with our fellow believers who've gone on before us. We look to them and we continue to look to them and see where they've gone, what they've done, and they call us forward. And that's what Jesus does for us in this passage. The author's saying, look at what he's done. Look at where he's gone. Look at him as the trailblazer and follow him into the rest of your lives and into eternity. So I have a couple questions. I have some things I want you to think about. What are some areas in your life where you're tempted to find your identity somewhere else. Maybe it's relationship, maybe it's job, maybe it's performance. And how can you invite others in to walk with you in that? Community group, somebody else in the church you want to meet and pray with. In light of gathering together and encouraging one another, that's the purpose of why we get together, who is someone that God has put in your path here at this church that you can minister to? Who's someone that, just pray right now even to think, who's, God, who's someone you want me to encourage here and spur on to love and good deeds? And I had a professor who would always say, don't just make nice you know, thoughts, actually make a plan. Like, what will you do this week to encourage that person? How will you spur them on to love and good deeds? And in light of maybe having excuses for not meeting together, what are obstacles in the way of you meeting together regularly? Again, please understand, I'm not saying that out of guilt. I don't know if we can make that clear enough. We're not saying you better have good attendance at community group or else you're not a good church member. That's not what I'm saying. It's good for you <laughs> to be together. It is good for me to be together with the saints. It's good for me to be in worship weekly and remind myself of who Jesus is and my identity in him. So what are some obstacles that might be in the way of you meeting together? And maybe this week, what are some other ways that you can meditate on Jesus and the gospel and what he has done for you, the suffering that he has gone through on our behalf and where he is now with the Father calling us forward? Church, we are called to be a family on mission. And I've said this to folks before, and I've experienced this myself, where I'm like, you know what? I wish it was better than this. Make it better. Make it better. 
It's on all of us to, to be a family on mission together. And as we pursue that as individuals and as families, we will grow in that together and we will grow in our faith and encourage one another in the gospel. Let's pray.